Uh, again, glad you guys are here. We are in part two of a series uh, that we're doing called uh, The Queen's Gambit. And again, I mentioned last week, I just loved the Netflix series and uh, found a, a new uh, interest in chess. But but we're, it's not a series about chess. It's actually a series that we're going through through the Old Testament book of Esther. And The Queen's Gambit, again, if you weren't here last week, is a is a chess opening move that requires the willing sacrifice of a certain piece uh, at the beginning of the match in order to gain a stronger position later on uh, in the game. And it's, a, it's an interesting move that, that some people use. And, and we talked about chess as a whole as a game of strategy. There's not much chance involved. There's no dice, no random card draw. So it's a game of strategy. It's a game of stages. There's the opening, the middle, and the end game. And each uh, play an important role in how you uh, engage with the other. And then chess is ultimately also a game of sacrifice. You cannot win a match uh, without losing a piece, and strategic sacrifices often will determine if you win the game or not. And the book of Esther is kind of a chess match. It's a story of a young orphan girl who gets thrust into a position of power and influence unexpectedly. And in this new position, there are new trials new problems that come along with this new abundance and influence she has. But her life and this season of life in Jewish history really turn into a chess match among some key players uh, as we read this story. But ultimately, this story is not just a narrative that we find in the Old Testament. It is, it, it's a revealing part of the character and nature of this God, this creator that we believe in, that we see that our God is a God of strategy. He always has a plan. He's a God that works in stages in our life. Things we don't understand that we go through become clearer later on. And ultimately, he is a God of sacrifice and has willingly sacrificed on our behalf and even models what it's like to walk through painful and difficult circumstances in our life to eventually receive reward on the back end. And so this is what we're doing for the next uh, few weeks as we head into the fall uh, is looking at this beautiful story in the Old Testament, this narrative story of uh, the story of Esther. I've, I've told Jared and some of the others that are going to be teaching in this is that um, this this book is really like very different than even a lot of the Old Testament books. It is it's written written like a novel, and so some ways I feel like I'm giving a book report to you on Sunday mornings as I read this and the truths that come out. But it is also a chance as we see these stages unfolding of looking deeply at how God's character is revealed in the midst of this. And I want to remind you of some of the characters. Uh, that we meet during this uh, time. Last week, we were introduced to the two characters. We were introduced to, to Vashti, who was the queen at the time. But I referred to her as kind of, in the game of chess, a principled but sacrificial pawn. She was played early, she faced injustice, and she was taken out of the game. But ultimately, that sacrifice opened up a door for a more powerful move later on that we'll see. And then we also see King Ahasuerus, which is uh, I referred to him as the king uh, on the chessboard. He's kind of simple-minded, can only move one direction, one square in a direction at a time, not much movement, very single-minded guy. And this week, we're going to meet who are going to be known as the two heroes 
of the story. Next week, you're going to be introduced to the final main character, which is kind of the villain of the story. But this week, we get to meet Mordecai, who's kind of the shrewd knight in the story, thinking ahead, planning, and then the eventual protagonist, Queen uh, and Queen comparative on the chessboard, Esther, who is plotting and purposeful in what she does. And so last week, just remember where we left off in Esther 1, uh, it left us kind of on edge a little bit as we saw Queen Vashti take a stand on principle that thrust her right into the middle of an unjust situation that cost her her crown. And then eventually that situation was used to create a national referendum to minimize uh, the role of women and the value of women in their entire empire. I mean, it was it was crazy. Her one decision uh, to stand on principle created injustice uh, throughout the entire empire. We saw a simple-minded king guided only by his lust and fueled by his pride make decisions that only elevated his own ego and had little to no concern for how it impacted the lives of others. And while you and I would love to be able to eradicate this kind of injustice that we saw in the chapter one story and in the story of our lives, the truth that we grappled with last week was this, is that our present and past pain and injustice that we experience can be an avenue for us to experience and express greater amounts of God's mercy and hope in the future. And we talked about how Queen Vashti's sacrifice and even the pain and and injustice we face in our life is paving a road for us to experience more of God's mercy and hope in the future. And we actually saw that, that God just doesn't teach this. He demonstrated this to us as he himself, Jesus, God in the flesh, came, was a victim of injustice and pain, and he laid a pathway through his sacrifice for you and I to have a relationship to experience the grace and peace of a connection with our creator, which brings us now to chapter two. In chapter two, This story turns not to more injustice, but it actually seems to take on a rags-to-riches story, a fairy tale story similar to Cinderella, uh, where a no-name young woman finds herself through a series of unexpected events in a very unique position. Not only is she invited into the palace, but ultimately this, who is ultimately a slave girl, becomes chosen queen and placed into a position of abundance and influence. And while most fairy tale stories simply end with they lived happily ever after, we're going to see that this unique position is another brilliant move in this game of chess that is going to be used as a strategic role in helping to turn around the cycle of injustice that we saw demonstrated in chapter one. This is the story. This is the beginning of the next move where we're placing people on the board in positions of power and influence that are going to eventually affect the, the middle part of the game. And it's, it's key what happens here in chapter two. It's not just this fairy tale, uh, beautiful queen coming in now. It is a strategic step in the story. And chapter two is going to help us focus on another key idea, and I think the key idea we need to focus on this week is simply this, is not your and my responsibility, it's not our responsibility to control every situation and determine every outcome of our life, but instead realize that God can create opportunities for impact and influence 
in whatever position we find ourselves. It is so tempting in life to want to control every circumstance that we face, to try to determine every outcome. And instead, part of journeying on this life of faith, of placing our lives underneath the authority of of God, is realizing that he can create opportunities for impact and influence wherever we find ourselves in this life. And this is what we're going to see happens in chapter 2. So let's look at this story, grab some truths out of it, see how it applies to us today, and, uh, and then go from there. I, I, I'm falling in love. I've read Esther before, but as I teach it more deeply, I am falling in love with the story. It is, you know, I think it's the closest thing to biblical Game of Thrones that we have. I mean, it's kind of this, this deep story. It's so the, the chapter two starts with a search for a new queen. So let's look at verse one and read together, and it says this. It says, after these things, and I'll explain what that means in a minute. When the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all of the providence of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital of the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women, the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, let me just give you an idea here. When it says, after these things, it's in history, from what we understand, it's probably about five years later. If you're watching this on the screen, the screen goes black, and it says five years later, and then we pick the story back up. And what happens where this fits into history is during those five years, the king had gone to war. This is the king of Persia. And historically, what we'd understand was he was doing their first invasion of the Greek empire. And although he had won some battles, they had faced a devastating loss in Athens. And he was coming home not as a victor, but as someone whose military power had been thwarted. He had been rebuked. He had been pushed back. Uh, and he remembered when he got back home as kind of a defeated man that he had no queen. Like there was no queen. The person that he had elevated to queen, he had been banished in a moment of pride and passion and really encouraged by those around him to do that. And now he was in a different mindset. Maybe he was a bit remorseful or, or maybe the better word is he was regretful that he did not have a queen to come home to. And his advisors in this moment, uh, quickly realizing that they could maybe receive the brunt of his anger for coming up with the idea to banish Vashti in the first place, came up with a bright idea. They offered to bring every eligible, beautiful woman to the citadel and put them through a beauty regime and then allow the king to pick his favorite. How do you get over a crushing military defeat? Nationwide beauty contest to pick a new queen, right? I mean, this, and this is not a search for a queen to rule beside him or to govern or to advise or to lead. This was a queen simply that was, in his mind, going to have one function, to keep him physically satisfied with her visual looks and her sexual availability. This is what, it was a distraction for him. He wanted to be distracted from his loss, from his defeat, to be re-energized. And so they put on this, this magnificent beauty contest from all of the provinces that they have and pull the beautiful women together. 
And this is now in verse 5 and 7 where we meet Esther and Mordecai for the first time. In verse 5 it says this, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemi, son of Kish, a Benjamite. He was bringing up Hadasha, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither mother, father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. So let's talk about these two characters and the uniqueness that they have of, of who they are. First is Mordecai, right? A couple unique things we see about him. One, it says he was a Jew, right? It is very clear. It even gave his lineage. And as we understand that, he is a Jew in captivity, but this is not widely known. He's kind of living undercover. He is the great-grandson of someone who had been taken in captivity. So he, he's, he's a captive of the Persian Empire. But the other unique thing we see here is that it says he was in not just the capital of Susa, but he was in the citadel, which the only people that came into the citadel were people that had business there, some level of prominence in the empire. And so somehow he had developed into a position of prominence and importance in the empire. And to me, this shows just how shrewd Mordecai is. He isn't just surviving in captivity, but has somehow found a way to thrive and gain a position of influence and access. And we're going to see just how important this is as we move into the middle game of this story of this game of chess that we see played out in the book of Esther. He is a shrewd operator. He has been and will continue to be. But then we meet Esther and uh, we meet our protagonist of this story, and we learn a couple of things about her as well. One, she is referred to, first of all, by her Jewish name, Hadasha, but also by her Persian name, Esther. And so this already reveals that she already has kind of a hidden heritage as well and a back, hidden background as well. And she was orphaned, adopted, adopted, and Mordecai is her older cousin who has been raising her in both Persian and Jewish customs. But the second thing we learn about her uh, that is highlighted here very obviously is that she was just absolutely gorgeous. I mean, there is no other way to interpret what it says in verse 7 than simply shape. she had a beautiful face and a voluptuous body. She was a stunner, a natural beauty. But we are also going to see that she is much more than just a beauty. She has beauty, brains, and the ability to use both to influence others and eventually help people caught up in injustice. Now think about the comparison right quick between the first two characters we met, the king Ahasuerus and Queen Vashti, and now Mordecai and soon-to-be Queen Esther. These two are the counter to the original king and queen. Think about it. Ahasuerus was has all the power, but he has no shrewdness, no wisdom, or compassion. Mordecai started with no power, but used his shrewdness, wisdom, and compassion to garner influence. Vashti was a great beauty, but she ended up a victim of injustice, while Esther leverages her beauty and brains to maneuver her way into a position of power to overcome injustice. It's a beautiful telling of a story here of how 
the downtrod, the, the underdog, are eventually going to get into a place of influence and use that influence for good. And so now what happens to Esther? We met her. We see in verse 8, this beauty pageant starts, and they bring her to the citadel. And verse 8 through 10 describe what happens there. Esther then was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. And the young woman, this young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not uh, made her known her people are kindred, which meant she didn't tell them that she was Jewish, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So the second thing we see, or the story takes a turn here, and what we see about Esther is Esther quickly sees that she has a gift of charm and grace. She has taken, this sounds like, you guys remember that old TV show, Extreme Makeover? Like where they would take these men and women who were like looking one way, and then they, it says they bring them their cosmetics. Like, I, don't, I, I am not into cosmetics, but I'm, my wife and daughter love getting makeup. Like, this sounds like a dream. Like, they brought the cosmetics for the women. But uh, it, it's a very different thing. They are, she's basically thrust in to a group of all these women who from all around, different parts of the, prov- different parts of the empire that are literally going to be paraded in front of the king and then ranked and chosen. And she uses charm and grace from the immediate from her immediate connection there to gain influence. Haggai, the, the keeper of the women, I don't know how he got that job, uh, is basically in charge of them, and he makes their lives as bearable as possible in this situation. And she gains a place of honor, and she's given more resources than other, and basically given front-runner status. That didn't just happen by accident. She, her brains and her beauty she used uh, to, to have grace and charm uh, connect with him. But we also see that she is remaining strategic, right? She's keeping her heritage and identity to herself. She is literally in a position to go from slave to queen. She's allowing her beauty at times to maybe blind people from looking too deeply in the past, while also at the same time using her wisdom and cunning to continue to grow into a position of influence and prestige. We are starting to get the picture that there is a true depth to this character, Esther. And then the moment of truth comes, Esther chapter 2, verse 12, when we start the, the, the parade process of choosing the queen. And verse 12 says this, Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into see King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since there was the regular period of their beautification, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments, and then when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal, royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Now, this sounds a little crazy here, like that it took them 12 months to prepare to see the king. There's more to it than that. It's not just, you know, all beauty rituals, although it was because the Persian Empire was known for their flamboyance and their beauty standards. But this was a practice to actually make sure that none of the women were pregnant and that they were not taken before the king and then an illegitimate heir 
came into uh, the royal bloodline. So they were literally in waiting to make sure of that. And as they were waiting there, uh, we see this moment of truth for Esther. She is taken before the king. And the way this is written, there is no comparison and no choice in the king's eyes. The word used here when he says that the king loved her literally means that he desired her above every woman he had seen or thought that he would ever see. There was no other choice. It was her. And she was made queen, placed in a position of honor, but also in a position of vulnerability, just like Vashti had been. But her wisdom and cunning is going to give her an advantage that maybe the previous queen did not have. Now here, Esther is in a very unique position right now. She's maybe out of her comfort zone, maybe feeling unprepared, uncertain. Maybe she had what we call today this imposter syndrome. You ever felt that like you, you get a new job and you show up and you're like, I'm not even sure how I got this job. If they really knew who I was and how unqualified I was, they would kick me out. Everybody else seems to know what they're doing here and I'm just learning on the job. And maybe she felt that way. I remember the first day I was ever hired at a church. Uh, this was many, many years ago. And I show up and they give me the key to my office. And I walk in and I sit down in this office and I'm like, what am I supposed to do in here? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, there is, you know, like, okay, I'm, I'm working here now, but do I just stare at these walls for eight hours? And then, you know, it's like you have to, sometimes it's learning on the job. When you get thrust into a unique position, a, a position you weren't expecting. And I believe this is probably how Esther felt, because we're going to see in the chapters of head, she, she moves ahead with trepidation. She doesn't begin to, to rule, you know, and, and exert her influence, uh, just, you know, with no regard for anybody else. She does it in a way as she's learning and taking a step forward. And I think that many of us maybe would have handled this situation a little differently if we were in Esther's position. I, I know for me, maybe I would be tempted to handle it a little different. Because I think too often when we see opportunity to gain influence or to exercise authority or to gain prominence, we don't allow God to lead us into it at his pace and in his way. Instead, we run toward it with our own desires and priorities at the lead. Oh, I see that door. I got a chance. I can be queen, king, president, this, whatever. I'm going to do, uh, now I'm running. I'm going to take the lead again and run forward. While Esther was wise and cunning as she was on this journey, she didn't sacrifice others. There's no record of her damaging other people or viewing herself as more deserving than others. Instead, she is graceful, patient, and even at times apprehensive about what she's experiencing. Esther wasn't a power-hungry, manipulative, backstabbing, ladder-climbing, wannabe princess. This is not the original episode of The Bachelorette, of like her pushing everybody else to the side. Her ascent to power and influence wasn't a hostile takeover. Instead, it was a wise and graceful walk through the situations and opportunities that God presented her with in order to play a strategic role in a plan that God had to protect and deliver her people. I love that. It was, she was wise and graceful and strategic 
as she walked through it. Which brings me again to our personal application for today and going back to our key learning, which is simply this. It is not our responsibility, right, to control every situation and determine every outcome of our life. And that's hard, right? We, we see an opportunity. We, we see how we can manipulate an outcome and we want to take control. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be wise, be cunning. She, she was. Mordecai was as well. They, they made the most of the situation. But you know what? You cannot control every situation in your life. You cannot determine every outcome of your life. Instead, we must realize that God can and will create opportunities for impact and influence in whatever position we find ourselves. Whether that's as a newly appointed queen or as someone who is facing pain and difficulty in their lives at this very moment. The truth is this, we often try to make our path in the world instead of stepping boldly into the pathways God directs us into. We boldly try to establish our own domain, our own kingdoms, our own ways. We compete with others. We try to open doors that God isn't ready for us to experience yet. Or maybe we stay too long in a place because of comfort instead of continuing to follow God onto the next phase of our journey of life that he's prepared for us. And you know what? We live in a culture and a city and a context that so elevates the value of a self-made man or a self-made woman that we often erase God from our decision-making process. And we simply lean on our own limited understanding and wisdom to direct our lives. And we end up telling God what he needs to do for us instead of asking him what we can do for him. And later on in the New Testament, there's a story of of two men following Jesus that show us this example perfectly. Two of his disciples named James and John had been following Jesus for a while, and they were not happy with the influence that they were having as a follower of his. They wanted more. They wanted to push forward. They, wanted, they saw an opening, an opportunity. Jesus, the Jesus movement was getting going, and they wanted to make sure they were at the front to capture as much of the influence as they could. And so they approached Jesus and asked him to allow them that when he became king, basically to let one of them sit at his left and one at his right. The other disciples heard this, the other ten guys, and you know what? They got mad. They got mad that they didn't think about it first, that they didn't make this ask. And Jesus pulls them all together and taught them something, a different way to be influential by not seeking it, but allowing it to be given to you as God sees fit. The Esther way of stepping into power and influence. And this is what Jesus taught them. Katie read it earlier, and I'll read it again out of Mark chapter 10. And it says this, And Jesus called unto him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That's that's King Ahasuerus. That's the story. That's the king that we see there. But, verse 43, it shall not be so among you. This is not how we're going to rule. But whoever would be great among you must be a servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom 
for many. I love how he turns the idea of power and influence on his head. He says, you know what the first thing is? When he says they like to lord it over you, he says we should be a servant. And our goal is not to seek power, but to value people. And we can get so caught up in wanting the right power and influence so that then we can show value to people that we run over people on the way to get there. And Jesus says, no, we do this a different way. Our goal isn't to seek power, but it's to value people. But then he says, all right, let's say you find yourself in power. Then the first among you shall be the last. And our goal there then is, is if we find ourselves in power, isn't to exercise authority, but to allow God's authority to be exercised in our life. So when you have influence, when you place in a position of prominence, when you have walked that pathway with God and you have that influence, it's not then to exercise authority, but to allow God's authority to be exercised in your life. To, to Again, the first of you will be a slave among all of you to be a servant to all. This model is so different than our culture. But you know what? You don't change an unjust or immoral culture by simply changing who's in charge. New election, new mayor, president, governor, whatever. You don't change an unjust and immoral culture by just changing who's in charge. You change it by operating in a completely different way once you are in charge. It's not just a new leader. It's a new way of leading. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. James and John just wanted to be in charge and elevate their positions and their desires. And Jesus said, let me tell you what will happen when I'm in charge. If you want to, do, if you want to rule with me, I'm going to give my life up for many. My life for all. Jesus modeled this type of living. Even as he was heading to the cross, to his death and sacrifice. He prayed in a garden, and part of his prayer was, God, Father, not my will, but your will. Like, I, maybe I would choose a different, but he's like, I will do what you're setting ahead. Jesus was, at that moment, had been living a rags-to-riches story, kind of like Esther. He was an uneducated prophet from a small backwoods town, and he suddenly thrust onto the national scene. His unique teachings and uh, powerful miracles are causing him to gain followers at a rapid pace. There's a groundswell of support growing behind him to overthrow the traditional Jewish religion, religious system and eventually overthrow the Roman occupation in order to reestablish the power of Israel. But Jesus always remained connected to the Father and his wisdom and his plan. And instead of going the traditional route of simply replacing one authoritarian ruler with another, he chose to live as a servant to others, to eventually willingly sacrifice his life and then demonstrate his power over death and sin through his resurrection so that you and I can experience true joy, hope, and peace. And then become, it says, joint heirs with him in the new kingdom of God that reigns in the heart of men and women. And you and I can experience this new type of authority, this new servant living as we connect our lives with the teachings of Christ, with the person of Christ. And we allow ourselves to, again, not be dominated by trying to control 
and, and demand every circumstance go our way, but learning to live in whatever circumstances we find ourselves and realize that God can bring influence and impact there. So my question for you today is simply this. Where in your life are you trying to direct your own path instead of walking on the pathways that God has already prepared for you? It's so easy to want to try to direct our own path, to to make a way to, to cut it out through the weeds, through the trees, find a path. But I want you to hear today, God has already prepared a path for you. And it's a beautiful path. And along that path, there's going to be great opportunities for influence and impact. There may be pain and discomfort along the way, but it is a path that he has carved out for you. And that path will bring you into a closer and more intimate connection with him. Where are you fighting for your own path? Today, would you step out and start walking on the pathway that God has already prepared for you. You bow your head and close your eyes with me as we close this morning. It's easy in a moment like this to think about the opportunities and the, and the way that I can make the most for God if I could just get into this position or achieve this level of success or to make this kind of impact. God doesn't need us in positions of power for him. He needs us in a position to receive his power to be demonstrated in our life. And today it is a beautiful thought to think that Esther moved from slave to part of a beauty pageant to eventually queen, and we're going to see power of her influence played out that impacts the entire nation. And God can do the same in our lives if we simply walk on the path that he has for us. God, you are creator. You are Lord. You have more wisdom than me. You have more understanding than me. You are a better judge than me. You know the pathway for my life better than I do. God, help us, help me to trust you enough to walk on the pathways that you've prepared instead of always trying to make my own.